to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. And we're also joined today by Jamison Daig, CBC's Director of Infrastructure Studies. Hello. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So today we have a slightly different episode. Not only do we have Jamison with us, but we're presenting Port Authority Executive Director Rick Cotton's remarks from a recent CBC breakfast with trustees earlier this week. So you'll hear Rick go into detail about what he describes as the five pillars of his agenda at the Port Authority, where he's only been for a short time. Safety and security, ethics and integrity, first-class operations, reinvesting in infrastructure, and improving customer service. That audio in a minute. But first, our data point for today with some key information for you about the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. And then after Rick Cotton's remarks and some interesting Q&A with the trustees, which is about 20 minutes in total, we'll be back to discuss some of what we heard with Jameson. Here's Maria with today's data point. The data point is $32.2 billion, the size of the 2017 to 2026 capital plan of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. As we've previously noted on this podcast, the Port Authority is responsible for some of the most critical infrastructure in the region, including the airports, the seaports, the PATH train, the recently redone Gothels and Bayonne bridges, the George Washington Bridge and the Lincoln and Holland Tunnels, and the 42nd Street Bus Terminal. The 10-year plan includes more than 600 projects. Among the most noteworthy investments are $2.5 billion for rehabilitation and improvements at the GWB and Lincoln Tunnel, $3.5 billion toward the replacement of the bus terminal, a project still in the early planning stages, $2.5 billion for JFK redevelopment and planning of an air train to and from LaGuardia, $2.5 billion for ongoing redevelopment at Terminal B of LaGuardia, $2.3 billion for the redevelopment of Terminal A at Newark, $1.7 for plans to bring PATH to Newark Airport, and a planned $2.7 billion in support of the Gateway Project, should it not be completely derailed by a lack of federal support. The Port Authority has a lot of work in construction, much more work in development to improve the customer experience of the airports, rail connectivity to the airports, and to rehab other infrastructure. Rick Cotton addresses some of this in his remarks. Let's listen in and come back to discuss. It has been six months since I uh, took over um, at the Port Authority. It was, I have to say, not part of my um, career plan as I look back. But uh, as I look at the Port Authority, I guess my, my feelings about it fall somewhat into the somewhat classic glass half full, glass half empty framework. And I'll leave to to you whether I've got the percentages right or not. Um, let me just, I'm going to click through some slides, although I'm not particularly going to read from them. They're sort of background for people to stare at. Um, on the one hand, the Port Authority is a pretty extraordinary organization with a dedicated workforce handling an enormous overall workload. As you can see, it receives no outside funding, it is, uh, is self-sufficient you know, from uh, revenue generated from its own facilities. Uh, and the organization is moving record numbers through all facilities, and it's advancing with dedication multiple major capital projects in a $32 billion 10-year plan. On the other hand, from my perspective, the agency really does have a very, very long way to go in terms of where it ought to be. 
The Port Authority's facilities are woefully inadequate to meet today's demand, let alone what we expect over the next decade and beyond, and they come nowhere near meeting global standards for customer experience, which I have to say I personally find particularly unacceptable. Before I turn to the Port Authority itself, I, I do want, as I was thinking about this, set a framework, and I'm not going to be telling many people in this room something they don't know, but large organizations are a challenge, and it's true in big public organizations and private organizations. And this isn't meant, as I go through this, as either a criticism or as an excuse, but if you don't face reality and look at the challenges you're up against, in my view, you don't have much chance of success. Big organizations, by their nature, are slow. People in them are overworked, they're process heavy, they have endless sign-offs, and they have uh, procurement processes everywhere you turn. Now, part of the sign-offs and part of the, of the process heavy is that with every bad event, every scandal, or every problem that arises, a new sign-off and a new process gets laid on top. And that's true internally and externally, and it never goes down, it only increases. It's a challenge inside, and it's a challenge for people, for organizations, companies, to work with the organization given the layers and layers. Generally, big organizations are inward looking, and that uh, is a particular problem in terms of a rapidly changing world where global best practice is rapidly moving up the curve to the extent one's looking inward and not outward. It's a big, it's a big problem. Uh, resistance to change. I mean, this is a human um, uh, failing, which is none of us like change, but big organizations in particular don't like change. Reluctance to take responsibility, which also slows things down. The cliche of success has a thousand fa fathers and, or, or mothers and uh, orphan and failure is an orphan. If you're inside a big organization, you don't want to make a decision which in retrospect can be seen as a failure in terms of your career. And finally, something that government institutions face in particular is revolving leadership at the top. So the organization has to decide whether any individual initiative is a passing fancy and they're going to wait it out or are, do they engage with it? So all of those become challenges which we'll talk about more. In terms of the Port Authority itself and the numbers, despite the challenges with outdated facilities, the Port Authority actually set operating records across all its facilities in 2017. At our airports, we saw the sixth consecutive year of record numbers serving more than 132 million passengers. That makes it the second busiest network of airports serving a single city in the entire world. At PATH, for the first time in its 56-year history, PATH broke the 80 million passenger milestone for annual ridership up 5%. At the port, cargo volume reached an all-time high, bolstered by the investment the port made to raise the Bayonne Bridge to accommodate the newest generation of ultra-large container ships. At the bus terminal, the busiest in the world, passenger traffic sets new records every year, rising in 2017 to an estimated 262,000 passenger trips per day. The organization deserves credit for those efforts, handling record volumes despite out, 
dated facilities, not to mention the extraordinary rebirth at the World Trade Center that the agency has overseen over the last 15 plus years. But in another sense, these record volumes are only more of a warning sign. Judged judge by global standards, our current facilities are not close to adequate to meet today's demand, let alone tomorrow's, and to serve constituencies that come to the capital of the world expecting much better. Our facilities are stressed with passengers, vehicle, and cargo volumes they were never designed to handle. And that demand is only increasing. But past underinvestment can't be an excuse for bad service delivery. In my view, the agency must focus on five core objectives, each with an eye on global best practices. Safety and security, ethics and integrity, investing in and rebuilding our facilities, that's the Port Authority's capital plan, best-in-class operating standards, which is not where the port is today, and 21st century customer service, which is certainly not where the Port Authority is today. I'll touch on each of these. So obviously, safety and security has to have the highest priority. Over the past 16-plus years, the port has invested hugely in security across all its facilities. But today, in security matters, the world continues to change, and obviously not for the better. To assess our current state of preparedness, the Port Authority last fall commissioned three separate expert outside organizations to examine the agency's facility security practices, cybersecurity preparedness, and emergency response capabilities. The agency will measure itself against global best practice in all three areas going forward. Second, ethics and integrity. To state the obvious, the Port Authority has been through a troubled period. It takes years to build a reputation for integrity and only a moment to lose it. It will take this organization years over successive boards and successive executive teams to earn trust back again. That's why it was a critical first order of business when the new chairman and I arrived six months ago to put a strong integrity agenda before the board back in September. This, of course, built on the comprehensive reform initiatives that started in 2014. The board and management committed ourselves to six new measures to bolster ethical conduct throughout the agency, adopted a new code of ethics for the board, adopted a revised code of ethics and financial disclosure for employees, established a new and intensified online ethics and compliance training program for em employees, established a new code of ethics for our vendors, established a new false claims policy which provides financial incentives for reporting financial fraud, and we appointed the agency's first chief ethics and compliance officer. The next step is to achieve the passage of the pending reform legislation, which is languished, and needs to be enacted in identical form by both the New York and New Jersey legislatures. Uh, turning to the capital plan, the Port Authority's capital budget actually does contain much needed seeds of change and they are moving forward. Perhaps the most visible and notable is LaGuardia where a whole new 21st century airport really is under construction. 
The $8 billion building, rebuilding of LaGuardia from the ground up is actually underway. Based on a master plan developed by Governor Cuomo's airport advisory panel in 2015, LaGuardia will be the first brand new airport built in the U.S. in 20 years. Two weeks ago, with respect to Newark Airport, the board approved the award of a design-build contract for the $2.7 billion construction of a new 21st Century Terminal 1 at Newark. This project will begin construction this spring. At JFK, we are moving forward with intense focus on the vision plan also developed by Governor Cuomo's Airport Advisory Panel for the redevelopment of JFK Airport. The Port Authority last fall retained an experienced airport master planning firm to provide expert advice on global best practices specifically for JFK. The Aviation Department is now in discussions today with every single terminal operator about redevelopment proposals. We are on pace to have further announcements in the near future. I would say the Port Authority in recent history has never been able to report that kind of momentum in rebuilding our airports and all involve master plans focused on achieving 21st century standards. Access to our airports really need to get at least as much attention as the airport projects themselves. The LaGuardia air train extending path service to Newark Airport and a one-seat ride to JFK must be front and center on the agenda. And if I might say to this audience, these access projects really do deserve your strong advocacy and support. We must get passengers out of cars and off our congested roadways and provide a reliable and predictable ma rail mass transit service to our airports. On the bus terminal, we are vigorously pursuing two twin objectives. First, the terminal must be rebuilt, and second, it must be rebuilt with full and ongoing support and respect for input from the surrounding community. We are working closely and intensely with elected officials from both New York and New Jersey on these two fronts. Gateway, and I guess I should have clicked here. Uh, Gateway is one of the most pressing, in fact, the most pressing infrastructure project in the country. That debate is obviously playing out across the front pages, and we can discuss it more in the question and answer. But a couple of important points with respect to the capital plan. Design build is now the default option for significant construction projects at the Port Authority. It was not when I arrived at the Port. By putting the designer and the builder into a single bidding partnership, the sponsor gains big advantages. Two procurement processes become one single process. Finger pointing between designer and builder is eliminated. The big picture result is that the design-build approach shifts risks to the bidder and enables the Port Authority to negotiate a meaningful fixed price construction contract with a specific schedule and deadlines. Gothel's Bridge, LaGuardia Terminal B, and Newark Terminal 1 are prime examples. We also believe in public-private partnerships. These partnerships bring in private financing options and draw on private sector expertise in building, operating, and maintaining facilities. LaGuardia Terminal B and the Moynihan Train Hall are prime examples of such partnerships. 
and you'll see the Port Authority aggressively seek out opportunities for such partnerships with the private sector. But that is not the end of the story. While with that praise for P3s still echoing here, let's transition to a discussion of operating standards and now wave an important caution flag with respect to P3s and private operators of public facilities. P3s do draw on private sector skill in operating efficiently and with experience in commercial execution that the public sector does not possess. But the public sector must set high standards, monitor performance, and enforce those standards in the event of shortfalls. The public sector's role is not done upon signing a P3 deal. The simple fact is that when it comes to operating standards day in and day out over the long haul, a public agency has an obvious and continuing responsibility to maintain oversight. We don't have a choice. The Port Authority must ensure that our facilities are operated to the highest standards. But as everyone witnessed, we were made acutely aware of the operating challenges specifically at JFK when it suffered a virtual complete breakdown following Winter Storm Grayson in January. As I have said repeatedly, what happened there was completely unacceptable. In addition to the independent investigation being conducted by former Transportation Secretary Ray LaHood that we commissioned and will be completed this spring, the agency is doing two things. First, we're not waiting to act. The agency is right now aggressively retooling how JFK and the Port Authority's other airports perform during storm emergencies. And second, because the private operator model that the agency has in place at JFK has compounded the challenge, we are rethinking the agency's role in more effectively setting, monitoring, and enforcing performance standards. Finally, I want to say a few words about customer experience and customer service. Simply put, the organization has to dramatically up its game in this area. Our airports are consistently rated the worst in terms of passenger experience. Only a part of this can be attributed to aging facilities. In my view, that is not acceptable. The agency can and must do better. Today's world demands that we think about the entire customer experience, from the time customers plan their travel and leave home all the way through to their end destination. Some of this may seem like small ball, but I don't see it that way. It includes new mobile apps and mobile-friendly websites. We actually have five in beta that have been launched in the past month. Improved customer alerts and better communication from all our facilities, from PATH, from our airports, from our bridges and tunnels, when there are delays and service disruptions. Real-time information on wait times at security lines and at taxi stands, real-time information on traffic conditions at bridges and tunnels, free, fast, easily accessible Wi-Fi and cell service, clean, working, and more visually appealing restrooms, operating escalators and elevators, and quicker return to service following preventive maintenance or necessary repair. This represents an effort at communication. It's a first draft. As you can say, see, it is not world class. More effective taxi line management at airports, cashless tolling at bridges and tunnels, more engaged, customer-friendly social media communications. 
I would urge you all to be our eyes and ears and share ideas if you, if you personally see particular things that we ought to be working on and improving. What I can tell you is that the agency is working, I might say struggling, but it is working on creating a culture that prizes customer experience. So thanks for the opportunity to be here and uh, happy to take questions. Some years ago, uh, a commission met and, and voted, or recommended that the Port Authority focus more on its core mission and not real estate. Have any steps been taken to reduce the amount of real estate the Port Authority owns, uh, or, and do you intend to do that? Uh, well, uh, I think, the, not I think, the agency has uh, accepted and embraced that recommendation. Uh, so there is, there is an effort to focus on core transportation responsibilities. Um, obviously, in terms of the development of the World Trade Center, the agency is committed to seeing that fully build, built out. But beyond that, there is a, I want to see how I can characterize that, there is a written embrace of uh, get focused on core transportation responsibilities. And actually, there exists a list of real estate that, the, again, the agency as a formal matter has embraced in terms of uh, disposing of that, of that land and, as you say, uh, getting out of the real estate business. Uh, but apropos of how I began, it has been slow in implementation. So you will see forward uh, movement on that. Uh, Governor Cuomo actually in his State of the State highlighted one of those uh, areas in terms of asking the port to undertake a study of moving its maritime facilities off of their current Red Hook location in Brooklyn. That uh, examination is underway and we will uh, try to be more disciplined in looking at the list and moving, moving forward on it. But the fundamental orientation has been embraced. Thank you. Those comments at the outset were terrific, uh, both astute and sobering regarding big organizations and change. In the same light, could you give us your perspective on the appropriate balance between independence and politics, political interference at the authority. There's certainly been a wide range over 100 years of those relationships from Austin Tobin to maybe the past 25 years, which ended maybe inevitably with Bridgegate. What's your perspective on that, and how should those two issues be balanced? Uh, well, I think the answer to that is carefully. Um, I guess the organization was set up almost 100 years ago in 1921 with a board of commissioners evenly split six and six between New York and New Jersey. Uh, it was set up uh, with a line item veto on the part of each of the governors. So that in some sense it was set up to be responsive to the political leaders of both states. And I think not recognizing that uh, is actually not helpful. Within that framework, uh, the 
implementation of the agenda. And the agenda gets set fundamentally by the capital plan in terms of expansion. And then really uh, a combination of external and internal um, uh, imperatives and framework in terms of day-to-day -day operations. I actually arrive at a time when the capital plan was set at the beginning of the year. It represented a setting of priorities, which at this point is a challenge to the organization to move forward. And what I would tell you in terms of at least my first six months with a new chair is that we are working well together in terms of moving the agenda forward. So I think you will see that balance, maybe I could say ebb and flow. I think at this point, the, um, the setting of priorities in terms of the capital plan has now been really put in place. The agency is charged with moving that forward. And at this point, in terms of execution and implementation, there is a unity um, in terms of the commitment to move that, that agenda forward. But uh, as you point out, uh, this will ebb and flow over the over the years, I just want to come back to my comment about the reform legislation. The fact is that the special panel recommended a change in the government structure, which was to move to a professional CEO in which both governors uh, participate and, uh, and uh, agree to the designation, and then the chair alternates every two years in terms of being appointed by a governor of one state and then and then the other. I mean, my own view is that when a, uh, call it a blue ribbon panel, makes a recommendation as a matter of good government, one should actually implement it. So my own view is that it would be a very good thing and the next step in terms of governance reform would be for the two legislatures to in fact pass the legislation, the reform legislation. There still is one or two outstanding issues but I think it would represent real progress in addressing what you point out. Rick, you invited us to circle back to Gateway, so I'll, I'll take you <laughs> up on that. Uh, two tunnels, uh, 120 years old, 450 trains go through there a day, 200,000 people, 70,000 more people coming from New Jersey to commute to Manhattan than there were 25 years ago. Everyone agrees it has to be done for the vitality of the region, if not the rest of the nation. It's stopped by politics and purely politics now. Do you see a path out, and how can we help? <laughs> well, I actually think uh, there is a political consensus, maybe with one exception, apparently, uh, that this is, it, it is, I think, by any definition, the single most pressing infrastructure project in the country. And I use the word pressing carefully, which is, as opposed to getting into a debate about importance, these, this, the two tunnels that exist are literally in danger of failing. And this has now been written about, and, and I note this morning that both the New York Post and the New York Daily News have editorialized that it is time to stop dilly-dallying and move the project forward. So there actually is a political consensus in favor of it. The dollars are such that the two states have now stepped forward with a combined $5.5 billion contribution to it, which is pretty stunning in its own right. 
and it simply needs significant federal participation. Obviously, that was committed to by the prior administration. And at some point, uh, what I would say is that this function in Washington has to stop. The funding decision now does rest with the Congress, and there are strong voices on both sides of the aisle as a bipartisan matter to provide funding. So as the budget process moves forward, uh, oddly, there is a, seems to be bipartisan support, and the question is whether it can navigate the shoals of this presidential administration. So all, I mean, I guess in terms of what people can do, it is support for the congressional voices, which are actually, they're not publicly that loud, but they are privately very vigorous in terms of moving the project forward and encouraging them, supporting them, uh, is, is very important at this moment in time. In your, in your opening remarks, you uh, spoke about the importance of getting people to and from the airports. A uh, 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 single seat train, uh, trains to all airports and the roadways in and out of them. But I didn't see anything in your capital plan or your comments on the capital plan for achieving that. And so I wondered if you could enlighten us a little bit on how that's going to happen and how that's going to be done in a way that's in cooperation with the people that uh, build the roads and the, uh, and the mass transit systems. Well, there's a slightly different answer with respect to each of the airports. So uh, there is money in the capital plan for the LaGuardia air train. Uh, very significant sums of planning money uh, have been committed to that. And you will see uh, the actual uh, construction uh, proposal go to the board in the relatively near future. Uh, and I have to tell you, I have, I mean, take one step back. I mentioned the access projects and I'm gonna describe with their state, but what I would say to you is that my perception in terms of the public discussion is that there are, there are critics at a level which I don't happen to agree with, but the, these access projects really don't get the public support and the public attention that they deserve. And I would just, living in the political world, that is a problem. And so I would just urge my own view, because I happen to believe in the projects, that these projects, if they're going to happen, really need public support. LaGuardia, the air train, is moving forward. There's a billion dollars uh, currently in the capital plan, and uh, there will be full financing for that. Uh, Path to Newark, there's a billion dollars in the capital plan for that. Uh, that's uh, would make access to Newark much easier from lower, from lower Manhattan. Um, and so what I would say is there is probably not as much momentum as needed, but it is front and center in terms of trying to address the question within capital plan constraints, and they're real and you're right to raise the question, in terms of trying to make forward, make forward progress there. With respect to JFK, it is a different story. The, um, there is a joint study by the Port Authority and the MTA to try to identify what would be or what could be a one-seat ride to JFK, critically important. Uh, once that work on the rail link is completed, then the 
question will be called in terms of how, how uh, could it be funded. With respect to road access, this is not the Port Authority budget, but in the New York State DOT budget, there are very substantial sums. If I recall, if you add them together, it's probably 1.6 or 1.7 billion dollars. Uh, one project is uh, the reconstruction of what I've learned to call the Kew Gardens interchange, uh, which is, you will recognize if you're a regular traveler to JFK, it is the interchange where you get off the Grand Wick and get onto the, uh, get off the Grand Central and get onto the Van Wick, which probably has been under construction for what, 50 years? Well, this is, this is chapter 26 of that, but it will significantly increase, and why it wasn't done before I can't explain, it will significantly increase both the exit lanes and the entrance lanes. It'll make some fixes in terms of um, how cars exit to the Jackie Robinson Parkway, but the point is it will significantly improve traffic at that interchange, and there's also north of a billion dollars that's focused on the Van Wick to widen it, and the challenge will be from a traffic engineering point of view, exactly what you do with that extra lane in terms of trying to have a significant positive impact on traffic to, uh, to JFK. So I go into that detail only to say it has attention, the state is contributing significant dollars, the big next step in terms of JFK is identifying a route and finding funding for um, a one-seat ride. Hi, going back to Gateway, um, there's been a lot of discussion about whether Gateway has, has grown as a project to encompass many elements that have raised the price. What would you consider to be the irreducible minimum scope of work, uh, minimum number of projects, and which projects um, to get Gateway done? Well, in one sense, it's an easy answer, which is it's the tunnel and the... Um, what's called the Portal North Bridge in Jersey, which is part of the approach to the tunnels. Because without redoing those two projects, we are in danger that is now being written upon about endlessly, which is if one of those fail, you virtually, you will cut, essentially, the Northeast Corridor in terms of Amtrak service, and you will cut New Jersey Transit's access by by at least 75%. It will be a traffic Armageddon, and it will have an enormously destructive impact. Having, getting those rebuilt, what they, in terms of the, the danger of failure, is it overcomes the resiliency question, which is a failure that will remove the threat that the corridor actually gets cut. The rest, and that's, um, that's a, $12.7 billion construction project in today's dollars. Uh, it is 11 point, let's see if I get this right, it's 11.1 for rebuilding the tunnel and 1.6 to rehab once the two new tunnels are built, the, uh, the existing tunnels. That is imperative. What that doesn't create is uh, expanded capacity because to do that you need Penn Station <coughs> to have expanded capacity. And that is what becomes the next phase and what then drives, uh, it, it's, a, it's an expensive next phase. But the imperative phase is to rebuild the, the tunnels and to rebuild the bridge that leads to them. 
And that, that's a mere $12.67 billion. So we've heard from Rick Cotton in some interesting Q&A there about the Port Authority and what's happening uh, with this really integral infrastructure in the New York, New Jersey area and some projects underway and projects that uh, they hope to get underway. Uh, so we're back with uh, myself, Ben Max, Maria Doulis, Jameson Day from CBC uh, to chat it over a little bit. Um, so one of the things, definitely the most, one of the most interesting things to me is this idea of restoring public confidence in the Port Authority, and that might not necessarily mean all the people who use it, and, you know, but really, you know, the folks who focus in on it and know what's going on there and about the leadership and about things that have happened. Um, what do you think the prospects are there in terms of, of rebuilding that public confidence? Uh, the Port Authority's made some steps um, over the past year um, to improve some of their transparency uh, when it comes to uh, you know what's going before the board um, and what is going on from a fiscal standpoint. Um, they're updating uh, their budget and their financial plan more regularly. Uh, they're showing forward-looking plans so that we have an idea of what they expect in the future. Um, and they're also beginning to apply some metrics, at least publicly, um, to what it is these dollars are getting in, in terms of uh, productivity and uh, use of the port's facilities. So um, really allowing uh, the public to get an idea of you know, whether or not they're getting the biggest bang for the buck. And I think part of that also is not just, you know, avoiding scandal um, and conduct, conducting business in an honorable way. I think part of that process will also be completing all this work that's in the pipeline and doing it in a fiscally responsible way and not being sort of subject to some of the overruns and problems that have plagued the projects in Port Authority before. Um, that being said, it should be noted, right, that even at, with the sort of little bit turbulent um, leadership at the top in the last few years, the Port Authority has been completing some projects very, you know, on time and on budget, some important projects in the region. And a lot of that has been done as DB or P3. You want to talk about that a little bit, Jameson? Yeah, I think probably the greatest example of that is the Gothels Bridge, which is not completely finished. They, 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 uh, they have it um, mostly up and they're working on um, tearing down uh, the old bridge. Um, but that was done through a uh, public-private partnership, um, one where the port is retaining the ability to set tolls, um, but a, um, a private partner is the one that's going to be helping to um, not only has helped build the bridge uh, and keep it on budget and on time, but will be in charge of maintaining it um, through um, sort of a, a long period of time here. And so... Um, with that, you know, the, the Port Authority has to pay uh, for that um, service, an availability payment, but there's some certainty built into that um, that's allowed them to sort of show this as um, a project that's well put together and uh, staying on time and on budget so far. Right, and they're also, LaGuardia, I think, is also teed up as a P3, and, and the Port Authority has actually completed, I think, two very large projects in the region um, very kind of old at this point, if you will, but the air train at JFK and the terminal terminal four at JFK, when it was reconstructed, both of those projects were done as P3s. Both came in on time and on budget and were viewed very successfully um, and were part of the sort of P3 best practice as it was developing in, in the States. Unfortunately, it seems only the Port Authority is really doing any of these deals. 
So speaking of uh, the airports, um, what are we watching for there when we, you know, that was something that obviously Cotton touched on quite a bit um, and, and our major projects in the pipeline. Um, what are you watching for particularly here as the airport projects move forward? Um, well, especially the LaGuardia project is, is very ambitious. Um, as Maria said, they are doing it as a P3. Um, part of the reason for that is to um, sort of offload some of the risk to that project to a, a private entity. Um, you know, the airport is still open. It's essentially hosting a dinner party every night while they're you know, gutting their the kitchen, kitchen every <laughs> night. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of moving pieces. And, I, you know, while customers are, um, you know, certainly having some frustrations with that, the Port Authority seems to be uh, focused in on, you know, the best ways to alleviate those problems and, um, you know, keep everybody communicating and working f uh, toward, um, you know, successful completion of the project. Um, the other, you know, the other two things um, that I'm looking at regarding the airport projects, one is the, the LaGuardia Air Train, uh, which is currently under design. And um, while that project had been announced and the possible routes had been discussed as well as a, a, a potential price tag, um, we'll get a little bit more certainty on what that will cost and, and what that will really get us. Um, and then the last, you know, last thing to, to sort of keep in mind is that a lot of these airport projects have been uh, geared toward redevelopment of existing terminals. Um, and while there, is, while there are some benefits to uh, efficiency by you know, better placement of gates and, and the various um, taxiways and things like that, um, these projects aren't adding new runway capacity. So we aren't necessarily um, expanding our capacity at these airports, um, either individually or as a region. Um, and that's sort of a much bigger problem that the Port Authority um, may need to address in the future. Super important point. Um, nevertheless, I think, what, you know, if you look at the Port Authority's business lines, right, the airports make money, the bridges and tunnels told make money, the two areas where they do not make money and lose a lot are path and the seaports. Um, so, but Rick Cotton said that ridership on path has increased. A lot of that is thanks to the troubles at Penn Station this summer, right? Um, is it now more efficient? Is it sort of turning the corner to become a profitable venture for them? Um, not yet. Um, and um, I'll come back to that a little bit more specifically when it comes to PATH. But uh, CBC looked at all the business lines um, several years ago and sort of uh, keyed in on, on the Port Commerce, which is the maritime ports, and PATH as lines that need big subsidies from the bridges and tunnels and the airports uh, to, to keep running. Um, you know, since that time, um, record cargo volumes at the maritime ports um, have helped the Port Commerce business line come closer to breaking even, um, but they still, you know, lose about $30 million, uh, per year. Um, I think this year they're, they're on track to, um, or they, they've budgeted to, to have that deficit. Um, but PATH, on the other hand, continues to require hundreds of millions of dollars in subsidies. And, you know, that, that isn't, you know, public transit requiring subsidy is not unique. Um, we subsidize public transit in New York City, across the rest of the country. Um, but PATH's financials are problematic for, for two reasons. Um, first, the fares cover a relatively small share of the system's costs. 
Um, it's less than half of its operating expenses, um, whereas, for example, the New York City subway covers more than 56% of its operating expenses. Um, other systems in the region, Boston, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, uh, all cover more than half. Um, even PATCO, which is a, a, a small system that connects southern New Jersey and Philadelphia, much in the same way that PATH does, um, shows that you know, they, their fares cover a larger share of their operating costs as well. Um, the second reason uh, is that PATH is, is less efficient um, and productive when compared to other transit systems like it. Um, you know, we have data from uh, 2016 that shows that PATH requires more uh, employee hours per hour of service uh, than the New York City subway and many other uh, large uh, rail transit agencies around the country. Um, and even if you break this apart, looking at just operators or just maintenance staff, um, PATH gets less out of uh, the uh, employee hours uh, that it pays for than other major systems around the country. And so um, we'll just take a few more minutes with you, Jameson, here to, to talk about some of the things happening at the Port Authority and some of the things that um, Rick Cotton said in his, his remarks at the CBC breakfast. One of the ways he started off was with a joke about um, gateway funding, and that was one of those um, funny jokes, but that also was sort of so painful that I think, um, you know, it was hard for people to laugh. Uh, and basically, you know, that um, funding for Gateway is looking unlikely. I mean, I don't know. I never want to say anything too definitive about what's happening in Washington, D.C. these days. Who knows? But um, is there anything else to say on that? Is I, New York, I mean, are New York and New Jersey, do they need to figure figure it out without the federal government or with a much more, you know, come back with a much more reduced request? I think it's a little early to retreat to the Alamo um, when it comes to Gateway. Um, the Republican uh, chair of the Appropriations Committee in the House, um, who's from New Jersey, um, has made comments that, that basically indicate that the $900 million appropriation that was for Gateway to sort of get started um, is something that's been discussed for months. And the idea that the, the president is is asking, um, you know, the speaker to kill it is, you know, not necessarily just going to happen. Um, you know, that being said, there are several steps before that appropriation um, becomes law, uh, including going through the Senate, um, including possible presidential veto. So I, I think that perhaps some of the um, the, the short term. Uh, fear over that appropriation in particular might be a little bit um, overblown. Uh, however, it's, it's not good when you have a, a major infrastructure project that um, is, is vital not only to New York City, not only to the region, but to the country when you start thinking about the amount of economic activity generated by the region um, to be something that the president is willing to kill. And so that's something that will be uh, really important to keep an eye on uh, as we move forward. I think one thing we know about the president, not other than the fact that, you know, he changes his mind a lot, is also that he's interested in deals, and that's why I say, you know, you never know what Chuck Schumer and others and, and, and even Republicans in the House might be able to work out with him. So we don't know what's happening there, but obviously that is something hanging over the Port Authority and hanging over this remarks that we've heard from 
from Rick Cotton. Uh, all right, last last topic uh, for today: um, the bus terminal that that Cotton mentioned. Where are we at on that, and what should we be looking for? Well, it's it's a little bit up in the air. Um, the Port Authority had uh, conducted a, a design competition um, to look at different options for the bus terminal in Manhattan, and. Uh, upon seeing the the results, I, the board were a little, um, uh, I think, suffered from a little bit of sticker shock, um, as well as concerns regarding the complexity of some of the plans, which, you know, somewhere to tie into Javits, somewhere to uh, build certain terminal structures underground, and, and there was sort of a lot of concern on, on whether it could really uh, stick to a budget and timeline. Um, so, you know, the, the Port Authority is, it sounds like now they're looking at the possibility of, of terminals on, on the other side of the Hudson River with a rail link that brings folks in. Um, and so it, it sounds like not quite back to the drawing board, but certainly opening up to other possibilities to, um, you know, replacing a vital asset when it comes to uh, connecting the two sides of the river. So. It's it is it is a bit startling when you look at the Port Authority's assets and the things that are in motion and the number of projects they either need to be taken on or are in the midst. When you talk about the airports, the bus terminal, gateway uncertainty, and more, um, so definitely uh, sort of timely topics and interesting that you have this new leader in Rick Cotton on board with some a new approach and and some big goals um, as he outlined in his remarks and his his five major planks there. Um, and just to, you know, return us to the data point for today, you know, $32.2 billion in, the, in this 10-year capital plan and a lot of big projects in motion that are that are so key to the area. So, Jamison Daig, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jamison. Thanks for having me. Bye.